0: Well, what a cool song that was. I was just reading along in Psalm 32 as we were singing that. and uh, Indeed, it's the words of God's Word that we get to sing to one another, sing together with one another. Um, There's another article in your bulletins today right after the one that Bob's been talking about, about the key to singing together as uh, a church. And uh, in there it says that we sing not as 50 or 100 individuals, we sing as one community. And we sing to minister to those around us and to be ministered to. And so certainly as a church we ought to take great delight in singing those hymns because as we well know there are some days when there are others around us that need to hear our voices proclaiming those great gospel truths and there are days that we need to be the ones to be comforted and our hearts assured by those truths that we have just saying in the songs we've sung tonight well I would encourage you this evening to um, uh, begin uh, your work tonight by turning in your bulletins to page four uh, and there there's five different passages of Scripture um, you can be looking those up and and uh, maybe putting a, a, a piece of paper your your fingers there we've got five fingers five passages you can just use your whole hand tonight to, to uh, mark those spots. We'll read those in just a minute together. Um, I know this is not normally what I prefer to do. I'm far more comfortable when I just start in one text and get to, to scrape all the meat off of those bones, but uh, uh, for the task at hand tonight, we need the breadth of God's Word to consider the cure for conflict. Over the past month, we've discussed a number of issues surrounding the larger issue Of church unity. We asked first, on what basis are we united? Where does the bond that you and I claim to share actually come from? Well, the fact that we are united to one another is rooted in the fact that we are each individually first united to Christ. There is a vertical unity that we share with our Savior that allows us to share in the horizontal unity, one with another and our union with christ by the gospel of grace allows us then to walk in a manner worthy of our calling it allows us to emulate the unity that we see within the trinity itself it allows us to strive for maturity together it's in those things that our unity is forged we then asked what it was that divides us what are the sources of disunity according to james our passions. That war within us or our lusts, as well as our propensity to down-talk or gossip about our brothers and sisters in Christ, cause disunity. We also saw in Jude that grumbling, complaining, lustful desires, and flattery will cause disunity within the church. Last week we asked what the end results of those divisions are. What are the consequences, the disastrous consequences of our divisive behavior? The Bible warns us that if we continue in disunity, we will cannibalize ourselves, devouring one another. Mutually assured destruction. It warns us that we will grieve the Holy Spirit, impossibly handicapping the ministries of the church from everything to the singing of hymns, to the preaching of God's word, to the evangelistic endeavors that we uh, participate in. And we will rob God of the glory that he is rightfully due when we do not walk in unity, worshiping God in one mind. Now I know, as I've said before, that that none of these things are comprehensive. We cannot hope to plumb the depths of our union with Christ being the basis of our union with one another in one 40-minute sermon. Nor can we anticipate and list all the causes of conflict within the church, and especially not the consequences, since the the consequences of our divisive behavior may last for generations and may spread far and wide. We cannot exhaust those things. (coughs) I admit before you tonight that I still bear the scars of a very messy church split that occurred when I was much younger. And I still remember very vividly the things that were said, the things that were done, the way that people who professed To be Christians treated one another. And those things still haunt me. So then understand all that we've done over the past few weeks. This is just a primer. There may be some situations that arise that we have not yet anticipated. But when they do, we should be diligent to take biblical principles and apply them to those same situations so that we might move forward together in unity. There is nothing new under the sun. And so your situation, though we may not have addressed it specifically, is not so unique that the Bible does not address it. And since we all hopefully believe that we are bound together in the blood of Christ, we should be able to affirm that there is nothing, nothing that should be able to divide us that we cannot resolve. There's no division that may ever occur that cannot be set right. And I would even add that that if, as we've been talking about this, you realize that there's issues that you may have with another believer. It may even be someone in your own home, brother or sister that's here at the church, someone that that there's something not right between you and them. I would encourage you, if you need help with that if you need help dealing with that situation come see myself or Bob come come talk to us about how we might be able to help you put that situation right so that we can deal with the disunity that might exist within the church but tonight we have one final question that we need to answer and that is what is the cure for conflict what is the cure when disunity actually does manifest itself in the church and it most assuredly will at one point or another. How do we respond in such a way so as to maintain the unity of the church and the integrity of our gospel message? There are four commands that we are given in Scripture that will guide us down the path to reconciliation, to forgiveness, and to unity when that unity has been threatened. So then, as we begin to answer this question tonight, I ask that you would, if you are able, stand together as we read the word of God and consider these instructions. First, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 14, we learn to flee from idolatry. Paul writes, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and fell in one day 23,000. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all of these things happened to them as examples. And they were written here for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man but god is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it therefore my beloved Flee from idolatry. From Galatians chapter 5, verses 13-25, through 25, we learn to walk by the Spirit. There Paul writes, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Beware, lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the lust of the or, or for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. From Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11 and James chapter 1 verses 19, 20, we learn to overlook offenses. Proverbs 19.11 says the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression. James 20 says so then my beloved brethren let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And finally from Luke chapter 17 verses 3 and 4 we learn to confront and forgive There we read, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. You may be seated. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer this evening. Lord, tonight we are grateful for the opportunity to come together and to consider your word and what it instructs us to do. This is such vitally important instruction, Lord, because as we have seen, divisions, grudges, animosity within the church is deadly. It will stymie all of our efforts to do those things which you have called us to do. And we'll end up spinning our wheels, wondering why nothing ever is getting done. Lord, I pray that as we consider these things again tonight, that you would help us to think very clearly about whether or not there's any wounds in our lives where we need to apply this healing balm. If there's any broken relationships, if there are any divisions that need these precious cures that you provide for us in your word. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to not just be hearers of your word tonight, but doers, examining our lives and applying these principles whenever we are able. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, the first remedy... For conflict, first cure that we see in 1 Corinthians 10 is to flee from idolatry. As we have discussed disunity, we have seen that lustful desires, idols, are often at the heart of our conflict. We want something. We desire something. Even something we saw that could be good. Something that God himself has said, this is a good thing. But we turn that good thing, that good gift, into an idol. And then we punish our brothers and sisters in Christ when we don't get the idol that we have made in our hearts. We've also considered before this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just a couple of weeks ago, when we saw that grumbling and complaining are sources of division and disunity. And they are not minor sins, but sins that resulted in the people of Israel being destroyed by the wrath of God. However, according to Paul, the remedy for all of these sins, the cure for complaining, we see isn't just ceasing to complain. We might think, well, well, what's the cure for complaining here? How do we we stop complaining from being a source of division in the church? Well, it's to stop complaining, right? Right. Well, that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't just say, hush your mouths. He says, no, you flee from idolatry. This is how we deal with complaining. This is how we deal with lustful desires. This is how we deal with any number of these things. We flee from idolatry. Because you see, the complaints that fly thoughtlessly from our lips begin as idolatrous desires in our hearts. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So then, long before we ever think about uttering a complaint, we must realize that an idol exists in our hearts. And we have to flee from it. We must dethrone it. If we flee from idolatry, then grumbling, complaining, flattery, and divisiveness are cut off at the root. Because they have no more strength from which to draw their power. It's not beneficial for us to grumble and complain and flatter and all of those things that we've talked about the past few weeks because there's no longer an idol that needs to be fed. Let me just show you how this might work in an example. Let's say that Jimmy kicklighter and Mike Morris are washing dishes after a Wednesday night service after a meal. And Jimmy accidentally splashes some water onto Mike's shoes as he's washing the dishes and suppose Mike having The water splashed on his shoes just turns and chews Jimmy out. Just lets him have it up one side and down the other. How dare you splash this water on my shoes? As we observe that scene, we need to ask the question, where's the idolatry at? Well, before they even began washing the dishes that night, Mike had already turned his heart toward his shoes. Or perhaps it was his outward appearance Those things became paramount to him so that when Jimmy threatened them, he lashed out. His idol has been trampled on. You see, if those things do not ever become idols, if they remain just shoes, just protective things for our feet, things to keep our feet warm and safe and dry, well, then we don't get upset when they get water on them or stepped on or whatever it may be. You know, Elvis had some blue suede idols, and so he didn't want people to step on them. but if we if we keep those things from being idols in the first place, we don't have to worry about grumbling and and complaining about them. right? We don't have to worry about them causing division because we have fled the idolatry, and there becomes there, there's no conflict when things like that happen. Now, I know that that's a silly example. But if we think about it, the exact same thing plays out every single day. Every single day our idols are threatened and every single day we lash out at people. We punish them when they threaten our idols. And so if you want the cure for conflict, if you want to prevent grumbling and complaining and flattering and gossiping, then you must flee from the idol. Realize that at the heart of all of those sins, we are exalting something else to God's position. And when something else other than God inhabits the throne in our hearts, we will protect it at all costs. We will grumble. We will complain. We will flatter to serve our idol. idol. And we will fight with our brothers and sisters to make sure that our idol is satisfied. And so let us instead resolve to flee From idols and the destruction that Israel experienced, that Paul says was written as a warning for us. There's a there's a reason that this is recorded, right? Paul says this is recorded as a warning for you. Because we have a tendency to go this same direction, to pursue these same idols. Let us heed that warning tonight and flee from these idols, and that will begin. To remedy, remedy these sources of disunity that might exist within the body. The second cure for conflict is to walk by the spirit. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 5. He contrasts here the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. But note again, this follows the text that we talked about last week. Where one of the results of disunity is that we devour one another. But pay attention to what Paul says here as he transitions from verse 15 to verse 16. If you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. After all of these things that led to Israel's destruction, he says, therefore, flee from idolatry. It's the same thing here in Galatians 5. You'll consume one another, I say then. In order to not do this, in order to not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, the remedy is to walk by the Spirit. It's those works of the flesh that lead us to bite and devour one another. So the antidote to this, the cure, is to walk by the Spirit. And we will not grieve the Holy Spirit, as we talked about last week, if we are consistently walking by the Holy Spirit. We will maintain the unity of the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. As we see this play out, Paul tells us practically what this looks like. He, he shows us how we can see when the works of the flesh are being manifested in the church versus the fruit of the Spirit. What do the works of the flesh look like? Well, Paul says it's adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Now, he says, consider the fruit of the Spirit. You have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Almost all of the characteristics that's listed here, whether works of the flesh or fruit of the Spirit, they are all relational. What is peace but peace between two individuals? What is love, if not love between two individuals? What is joy, if not all of these things? What, how do how do we uh, experience patience, if not or long suffering, if not with someone else? Kindness, goodness, those things are manifested in relationship with one another. So too are the works of the flesh, outbursts of wrath. Doesn't happen when a person lives as a hermit. Right? It could, we call that Tourette's or something else like that, but, but typically outbursts of wrath involve another person. And so these characteristics that Paul lists, whether works of the flesh or fruit of the Spirit, they have to deal with how we interact with other people. And it's clear then that walking by the Spirit will promote Unity as we manifest these fruits of the Spirit in our relationships with one another. However, this goes deeper than just us trying really, really hard to be loving and gentle, gentle, etc. Paul tells us that we have actually crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we are in Christ. And so this is a question of whether or not we have believed And are living in the truth of the Gospel. Because you see, if we are in Christ, we have been set free from the flesh by Christ's death. Our flesh was nailed to the cross with Christ. It is why He had to die, so that our flesh might die as well. So then we might ask, well, shouldn't it be easy than for us to walk by the Spirit, to not follow after the works of the flesh. Well, our problem is that often we will attempt to resuscitate our flesh. We will turn back to that which has already been crucified. Philip Graham Ryken says that as we attempt to pull our flesh off the cross, he says this has to stop. Do not administer first aid to your flesh, he says. Instead, treat it the way that Jesus was treated at Calvary. Mortify your sinful nature. Put it to death. From time to time, whenever it shows signs of life, say, oh no you don't. Don't try to climb down from there. Get back up on that cross where you belong. Then pound the nails in a little deeper. If you belong to Christ... You have crucified your sinful nature with all its selfish desires. Do not resuscitate it. Do not give it CPR. Do not keep it on life support. Just leave it on the cross and let it die. That's what we ought to do with our flesh. When it rears its ugly head back up, and it will, it's going to continue to do that until Christ returns. And it's finally done away with once and for all. But until that day, until the day that we cease to live in this flesh, we're going to have to continually put it to death, day after day after day. As John Owen said, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. We must put it to death daily. Understanding that it will try to get the better of us every single day if we let it. And so let your flesh die. Walk according to the Spirit, and we will see less and less disunity in the body of Christ. We will see more and more unity, more and more love, more and more faithfulness to our mission. We walk by the Spirit. The third cure for disunity is perhaps the simplest for us to understand, but often the hardest to execute. That is to simply overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11 tells us that the discretion of man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression. These two short lines reveal a profound truth about how we ought to interact with one another. We ought to be slow to anger. But notice he doesn't tell us how slow. It's open-ended. Do you have to wait for three offenses to occur where before you have been sufficiently slow to anger? Or do you have to wait till hundreds pile up? And then have you been slow enough to anger? Then can you lash out at the water on your loafers or whatever it might be once you've crossed that threshold? James reiterates in the New Testament, as we read earlier, that we ought to be slow to anger. For he says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When you in your flesh are welling up with anger and rage, you are going the opposite direction from the righteousness of God. And so the question then ought not be how long we must endure before we are allowed to be angry as if we are eager to get angry, as if we're just waiting for that line to be crossed so we can jump down somebody's throat. The question ought to be, how far from anger can we remain? It's like a teenager asking how far is too far for them to go with their boyfriend or girlfriend. I hate that question because I know when they're asking that question, we've already lost the battle because they've already resolved in their minds that they want to go as far as they possibly can without breaking any really bad rules. All right, they, they want to get as close to the edge as they possibly can before diving over. And so if you're asking that question, well, well how long do I have to wait before I can really get angry? You've already lost the battle. You've already deter- determined that you want to get angry if you're asking how long before I'm allowed to get angry. And so we must resolve to remain as far away from the anger as possible. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, nor does it produce unity within the church. And so the flip side of this is we strive to remain far away from anger, as we strive to be slow to anger. The positive aspect of this is to overlook the offense. For this, we're told in Proverbs, is the glory of of man. I know this is hard to believe, but you do not have to be avenged every time someone slights you or insults you or offends you. You don't have to ride that person's bumper when they cut you off in traffic, just so they know how irritated they made you. Saul sought to kill David, the rightful king. But what does David do? We see in the Psalms repeatedly that he goes to the Lord and pleads that the Lord would avenge him. And when he has the opportunity to take that vengeance himself on Saul, he passes it up. He knows that the Lord will vindicate him. You see, the world looks to get even. Christ doesn't. Christ tells us that we ought to turn the other cheek. Christ tells us to forgive our brothers 70 times 7 Christ went to the cross for an unfathomable list of our sins, none of which he had committed. All of those things are terrible. But Christ tells us how we should act in those situations, and then he demonstrates for us by suffering the greatest injustice ever done to any person, ever. And he does it willingly. He embraces that for our sake. And so do we respond to wrongs against us like Jesus did? Or like the world does? Do you want to get back at someone what they did to you? Do you want revenge? Do you want to get even? Often when dealing with children, if one child does something to another... The other, we we catch it before the other is able to to retaliate. The, The one that's going to retaliate says, well, that's not fair. They did such and such. I should be able to do that too. And we say, yes, I know it's not fair. It's not. It's not an eye for an eye. But this is the way that Christ has called us to walk in. To walk in forgiveness. To not seek retaliation and vindication on our own. Do we want someone to hurt or feel bad because they need to understand what they did to us? I want that person to feel just as bad as they made me feel. It's often our attitude, I think. But that is not Christ in us. That is, once again, our wicked flesh trying to crawl back off of that cross. Trying to breathe new life into its crucified bones trying to re-enlist us into the service of Satan. Do not give in. God will vindicate. God will avenge. God sees and He knows. I love that line that we read this morning in Exodus chapter 2, the very end of that chapter. God sees. God knows what His people endure. It does not go unnoticed. It does not go forgotten. Do we trust Him enough to put our vindication in His hands and trust Him to avenge. You see, this is not easy because at the heart of this we find the oldest and perhaps most powerful idol of all, the idol of self. The idol of self demands that retribution be made when that insecure God is threatened. And so that is why we bristle and our tempers rage When someone offends us. Brothers and sisters. We need to understand. That that weak God must be dethroned. There is no salvation to be found. In the idol of self. Adam has already tried to worship at that altar. And he found only damnation. We do not need to take ourselves too seriously. We need to remind ourselves. We are no gods. So that when we are insulted, we can overlook that offense and not demand an eye for an eye. We understand this, I think, well enough when the roles are reversed and when we become the insulter and someone else is insulted. Because when someone else gets angry at what we say, well, what do we do? We say, well, it was only a joke. You need to calm down, chill out. You're taking this way too seriously. But you see, their problem is the same problem that we have. That is that we believe ourselves to be far more important than we really are. We take ourselves far too seriously. And so we cannot abide by any slight of our selfish God. What happens though? What do we do? If someone does do something that is impossible to overlook, it's, it's to our glory to overlook an offense. And we ought to as often as possible, if someone says or does something that offends us, overlook it as often as possible. Be slow to anger. What does it matter anyway? But let's say it does matter. Let's say someone actually commits a sin against you. They actually involve themselves in some sinful or immoral behavior something that threatens to damage the unity of the church or threatens to damage even their own soul? What if it's not just a careless word or forgetting a promise that they had made or making you the butt of their joke? What if someone does sin against you in a way that threatens the unity of the church? Well, if we cannot overlook the sin, there is one final cure for conflict to be applied. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 17 verses 3 through 4 that if your brother sins against you, it is incumbent upon you to do two things. First, confront that person and then forgive them. Now we need to understand that this is first and foremost our responsibility. Look at what Jesus says. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents... Forgive him. This is an imperative that is being addressed to Jesus' listeners, being addressed to us. If someone sins against us, it is our job, our responsibility to go to that person, to confront that person, to rebuke that person. If you feel like you have been wronged, then Jesus, whom you profess to be your Lord, commands you to confront that person so often though i will hear people say well they wronged me they did something terrible they should be the one to come to me and apologize they should be the one to pick up the phone and call me i won't talk to them until they do or they might say i have no desire to speak to that person you have no idea what they did to me well does jesus know Because I'm not telling you that it's your job to confront that person. He is. These are his words. This is his command. When you are wronged, when someone sins against you, you go to that person and rebuke them. Confront them. There isn't a caveat here. There isn't nuance. If you have been wronged, you must go to that person. Now this doesn't mean that you shouldn't use wisdom in what you say or how you confront. It doesn't even necessarily mean that you should go alone. But if you feel that you have been wronged, the next step is yours to take. If you don't want to do that, well, then you need to go back to the third step and ask, is this something that I can overlook? I don't want to confront that person. Well, maybe I just need to overlook it then. So do it. It's to your glory, Proverbs says, to overlook it. But if you cannot overlook it, you must confront. There isn't any middle ground to occupy here. But unfortunately, I feel like this is where most people stake their claim. We won't truly overlook an offense. Oh no, we remember what that person did. We remember what that person said. We're going to allow it to continue to drive a wedge between us. But we also refuse to go to the person Confront them. And so we remain in this purgatory of fractured relationships and broken trust. It's no wonder the nations are not yet reached with the gospel. It's no wonder that our politicians openly lobby for infanticide. It's no wonder that racial tensions continue to exist. It's no wonder that our neighbors are not transformed by our influence. You see, the churches we read about in Acts, they had no money, no power, no influence, no legal protection, no rights, nothing. And yet, within one generation, the gospel advanced to the far corners of the known world. Why? Well, it's no great mystery. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 tells us, "...so continuing daily with one accord in the temple." And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. You see, we don't need, as a church, better programs, nicer buildings. We don't need new visions to be cast and all those things that churches look to today. We need unity. The church in Acts was in one accord. One accord. They were unified. They didn't let petty offenses derail their gospel mission. But we do. We won't overlook, but we also won't confront because that would be awkward. Listen, church, your neighbors are going to hell. Your children are going to hell. Some of us in this room may be going to hell. But heaven forbid that we actually experience a little slight awkwardness to deal with the divisions that might exist between us. To actually deal with the bitterness that's preventing us from accomplishing those missions. You see, it's far easier to remain stymied in perpetual complacency and irrelevancy. But our time is short, church. We don't have many years on this earth. We don't have time to waste. And so I don't know what conflicts may exist out there. I don't know what grudges may continue to fester. I don't know who wronged who however many years ago. I really don't. But if those grudges exist, then for heaven's sake, let's deal with them and put them out of this house for good. The final step in all of this is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Jesus says, after we confront, if they repent, then we must forgive them. We must. It's commanded, it's demanded that we forgive them. And we forgive them extravagantly. Even seven times in a day, if necessary. Elsewhere in Matthew 18, he says 70 times seven. We forgive in such a way that we refuse to let the offense come between us so that we can once again embrace as brothers and sisters in Christ as if nothing had ever gone on without wariness or any hint of bitterness. We forgive with the same extravagance that God has extended to us in forgiveness. If we know forgiveness, if we truly understand what God has forgiven us of, then we shouldn't even blink when the opportunity to forgive a brother or sister in Christ arises. Forgiveness is what has brought us together into this family. Forgiveness is what has admitted us into the family of God. And forgiveness is what will keep us together in this family. And so let us seek to give freely to others what God has already given freely to us. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we thank you for your word because it is a precious, precious medicine to hurt and broken souls. Lord, we see in your word promises that if we would but be faithful, if we would seek forgiveness and reconciliation, if we would seek to overlook offenses, if we would Seek to walk by the Spirit and flee from idolatry. That love would abound, that truth would abound, that that you would receive the glory that is due your name and that the church would march forward triumphantly in one accord, accomplishing all that you have set before her. Lord, I pray that you would give us the bravery to do what needs to be done. To examine our lives and to see is there anything between myself and a brother or sister in Christ? And then to actually take the next step and go to that person to do what needs to be done to extend forgiveness and to accomplish reconciliation with one another. even. Lord, as you have reconciled us to yourself in Christ. So it's in his name that we pray tonight. Amen.